Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with architect Ross Chapin and Michael Lerner as they discuss design, body knowing, and the inner life. Ross Chapin, welcome to the New School. Michael, thank you. It's a real pleasure. So a little word picture here. It's uh, the end of January 2014, uh, a Wednesday before Super Bowl Sunday when the Seahawks will be playing the Broncos. So the entire state of Washington (laughs) is in a state of considerable uh, energy. Um, We're sitting in your small beautiful house in the town of Langley and I'm looking out the window at a little fountain. It's raining slightly so there are little drops of rain and the fountain, let me ask you to describe the fountain because you're better at this than I am. How would you describe the fountain and the little body of water. Well, what you're not aware of because it's raining is that the fountain is on the south side of our house, which means that the sun comes in in midday when it comes out and reflects light dancing on the ceiling. And uh, in the middle of the pond, which is about uh, maybe eight feet deep long, is this round sphere that appears to be floating in the water with a fountain bubbling and um, so that's sort of my uh, Japanese uh, miniature uh, garden of the universe. And um, the uh, roots of having this here is when I was young, uh, I grew up next to a lake in Minnesota. And I remember lying as a child on the floor of the living room and looking up to the ceiling and seeing light dancing, light reflected off the water of the lake. And so this was my way of bringing my childhood home here in this place. And uh, it's a very simple house, a box of a house made after World War II. Nothing at all extraordinary about it, except that it faced south with its orientation. Large trees to the north. And it had good, good bones. And we moved here and over time just did little things to bring it alive for us. When did you move here? We moved here in 1982. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deborah and I came here a few months after we were married. Uh, here being Whidbey Island. I had uh, been here on Whidbey Island several years before uh, in a kind of a happenstance of, of meeting um, Fritz and Vivian Hall over at the Whidbey Institute. And uh, it, at that point, it was called Chinook. Mm-hmm. And uh, we kept in touch, and uh, after we were married, we, we were exploring. And I said, I, I want to go and touch in on this island and see what's there, because I think there's something very real. Mm. You're an architect, and I was thinking about how to introduce you, and I thought to myself, you are a maker of luminous buildings. Mm. Um, And your buildings, both um, homes and larger structures, um, 
Pocket Neighborhoods, for which you're famous. You've written a really extraordinary book called Pocket Neighborhoods, Creating Small-Scale Community in a Large-Scale World. So your, your individual homes, your larger buildings, your neighborhoods that you've created... Um, they bring, uh, they almost, they almost bring tears to my eyes sometimes. Um, and I was reading; I was very interested because you've been deeply inspired by a great architect thinker named Christopher Alexander. And Alexander, in one of his books, which you were kind enough to lend me, talks about when he is designing um, a building or a a garden, you know, just a a setting that one of his goals is um, is getting sadness in the flesh of the building. That um, he has he has a whole chapter in this extraordinary book called "The Nature of Order: The Luminous Ground," and he has chapter eight is called "The Goal of Tears," mm-hmm. and. Uh, why unity and sadness are connected, uh, getting sadness into the flesh of a building, sadness of color and geometry. Um, Does that speak to you? I think that the physical environment uh, has a way of touching, um, touching us deeply touching us uh, at a soul level in much the way that music does, in much the way that poetry does. Anything that is... Um, we come from the measurable world and through the touching in of the measurable world, we touch into the unmeasurable. We touch into that within us um, that is uh, real, that is alive, but is untouchable, our feelings. And the root of what Christopher Alexander is working on, he is, in one sense, a scientist, but he's also a humanist. He is working with the structure uh, and understanding the structure, the physical structure of the world. But equally full is the nature of feeling. And not feeling as glamorized, but feeling as the, the deep, Um, human capacity to engage the life, the root of life in our world. It's so extraordinary. Uh, As you know, two years ago, my wife Cheryl and I were able at the bottom of the, you know, housing market to uh, buy a very small old house uh, a few blocks from you here in Langley as a as a refuge, and um, and actually, you and my friend Rick and Grassi were the two people who made me decide to look for a house in the town of Langley, as opposed to, you know, outside where so many people prefer to live, you know, on smaller, large tracts of land. Um, and I just noticed that you and your wife Deborah and Rick Ingracias and his wife Peggy Taylor, that you just moved through the the town in the course of the day, that 
rather than having to get in a car and drive somewhere, that you'd be downtown doing some shopping or at the little movie theater or at one of the coffee houses or I saw you and Deborah having a picnic downtown one day uh, on a little uh, little park by the edge of downtown. And once we moved here, you began in the kindest possible way to help me think about how to rehabilitate this old building, one of the older buildings in town, uh, you know, built by one of the settlers. Um, and I could actually watch from close up, which is very different from simply reading one of your books, how you engage with a space. How do you engage with a space when you, let's say you come into a home that somebody has has decided they would like to bring alive, bring out the luminosity. What do you look for and how do you approach um, helping a space come alive? It's so simple and it's so complex mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, the simpleness is, where's the sun? Mm -hmm. How do you approach the house? Mm -hmm. um, what are the factors that um, you want to steer clear of. The busy street out front. Um, you know, down the hill, some of the noises uh, coming from the commercial area. The opportunities to uh, enliven the outdoor space, the garden, uh, which may be just latent. There's almost nothing there. How do we engage with it? Where are the openings in the house? And so as I approach it, I, I look at the physical environment in that way. But the other side of it is, who are you? Mm -hmm. And what do you want? What are your dreams? What supports your life? There are some people who are very engaged in the world, have a very uh, gregarious um, relationship to the community, and they need a very quiet retreat, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Or there are others who may be uh, the opposite, lead a very internal world. And they need um, to have a, a link to the wider world. It might be a porch out along the street where uh, a neighbor might be walking by or I might be walking by and say, hi, Michael, and we, we nod and exchange. And so the relationships of your needs in your relationship to the world are what, what are important. And the marrying of the potentials and the liabilities of the physical environment with the core desires of a human life. Mm. The other aspect of it is, do you live alone? Do you live with um, your partner? Do you have a family? Do you have others that visit? Uh, how long do they come? Uh, if you've got guests that you'd love to have, well, maybe these guests you would like at a little bit of a distance, or maybe they you'd like for them to be able to sleep in because you wake up early in the morning and you want to offer them uh, a guest spot that gives them their own freedom of their rhythm and come together in, say, the common kitchen. Uh, so all of these come together. Um, and in realizing the, the magic of a place, everything is unique. 
And yet, at the same time, there are some core structural uh, elements that are that we relate to as humans on this earth. Let's talk about Christopher Alexander. Who was Christopher Alexander? Who is he? He's still alive. Who is he? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Chris Alexander is uh, an architect, a scientist, a writer, a theorist, a philosopher, a builder. He uh, currently lives in England. Uh, he spent a, a major portion of his working life uh, based in Berkeley at the University of California. He, um, in the early 1960s, came forward with the idea that the physical environment and cities uh, in particular, he wrote a a little piece called um, The City is Not a Tree. And by that he means that um, uh, the city master planned might be organized in in a hierarchy. Well, in his experience... Uh, in living in uh, traditional cultures and living um, in uh, England uh, and experiencing nature and the world, he recognized that the physical environment has more of a semi-lattice structure. In other words, that there are complexities at different levels of scale that come together. And it can't be organized as a a singular structure, that these are more web-like structures and so he was recognizing kind of things like complexity and uh, was asking questions about why, why does life appear in these locations or that location? And why do some other areas have very little life? What is the core structure? And so in the very beginning of his career, he was asking these essential questions and exploring with a tenacity with an um, unrelenting um, look at things. He was uh, originally trained, um, I believe, at Oxford uh, as a mathematician and came about things in a, in, with a theoretical basis and a scientific basis. But at the same time, uh, as he came into his... Um, living in the world as an adult, uh, I think he recognized the, the power of feeling, the power of his capacity of experience. And he recognized that in places that had this life, um, there was not a clear, neat order, but there was a messy, vibrant, living quality to it. And so these are the questions that he was asking early on. Yeah, I, I've been reading Christopher Alexander for years. The books that I've read are his books, The Timeless Way of Building and A Pattern Language. Um, I hadn't read his late books, which you were kind enough to lend me two of, on the nature of order, uh, including uh, four volumes, including The Phenomenon of Life and The Luminous Ground. There's a... Um, Chapter in, just to give us a sense of it, chapter six of uh, The Luminous Ground called The Blazing One. I just want to read briefly from it. I now embark on the most ambitious and possibly the most thought-provoking chapter in the four books. 
uh, to make the reader share with me my sense of what is really happening in the architectural examples where life appears. I shall now try to describe something of feeling so remote from our ordinary sense of things that it may have to be called metaphysical, truly beyond physics. And then he talks about the faintly glowing quality which can be seen in a thing that has life. And he has one achingly beautiful image of a moss garden at Rio Anji, Kyoto, and uh, a uh, golden mosaic ceiling in Florence, at the Baptistery in Florence. He says, what are the reasons that this glows? And he says, okay, one potential reason, a rational one, is a psychological reason. But then he says there's the possible existence of a single underlying substance. And then he goes on from that to say that this substance connects one with what he calls the blazing one. And he says, when a thing has life, our experience is that somehow, in being with this thing or looking at it, we catch a glimpse of something luminous in it, of a deeper, more significant domain or realm beyond, some reality more pure and more fundamental than the one we are used to living in every day. So he says there's a connection between this I or self and this blazing one that is evoked by these living structures. Now, clearly, Christopher (laughs) Alexander is far outside the mainstream of architecture. (laughs) Far outside the mainstream of architecture. Well, it's interesting that you read the quotes from the Luminous Ground because of his whole life of uh, writing and exploration He took 30-some years to come to writing these four volumes called The Nature of Order. That is, he kept on trying to move to the the root, to the base, to the fundamental explaining of why there is uh, life and light in the world and why the structure of our environment is so important. He's also extremely practical. He's a builder. He's an architect. Um, He's a master builder of sorts, and he's built uh, hundreds of buildings. So to think that he um, is far outside the mainstream, he is in his thinking, and yet I think he is going uh, and touching in on something that is uh, more universal um, and perhaps closer to the human experience. No, that's true. That's an important corrective to what I said. And I also think it's important to say that he is... um, he is not a out-in-the-clouds theorist. He is always asking the question and bringing it down to uh, the nature of simple daily experience. Mm-hmm. You, um, you know, mentioned um, the gardens at Rianji mm-hmm. and the, the mosaics. Uh, mm-hmm. in this beautiful space. Well, he would just as soon um, give an example of um, uh, two men playing checkers in a park mm-hmm. or the smile a mother is giving to their child. Or uh, a neighbor of his in Berkeley who takes care of meadows and cleans them up. Exactly. Bit bit. Yeah. These are not profound. Right. And when I came across uh, Chris Alexander, um, I was struck by... Um, by the realness of it. Uh, you know, as an archi- 
architecture student in school, we're put into the history, you know, 101, and, and basically learning the, the highlights of, uh, of the people in charge through history. Uh, you know, the churches and the, uh, the significant buildings. Well, I was probably more interested in what about the history of the people that were around the cathedrals that were being made? How did they live? What were their homes like? Um, what were their patterns like? And so I, I had worked to, you know, go from this and that. And that whole piece around, uh, you know, getting into uh, architectural education and so forth. When I came across Chris Alexander, I recognized something that was um, in me already. Um, I come at design uh, naturally. It's just something for me is play. I wanted to ask you, do you think in pictures or in words? I, I, no, not words. Uh, sometimes words are a second language. Because um, some people think in pictures, some people... And I, I visualize very clearly, I visualize very spatially, but I, there's um, a perception having to do with feeling as well. Uh-huh. I'm probably more kinesthetic. I get it. In my modality. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about pocket neighborhoods a little more. At this point, we've mentioned pocket neighborhoods, but, you know, the first question is, well, so what is uh, a what's a pocket neighborhood? Yeah. And um, let's see if I can get to a simple thing. The summer when my book was just about to go to press, a good friend had us in her garden at a, a meal. It was a long table uh, under the orchard, uh, the apple trees, uh, that were ripening, and we looked off to the Maxwellton Valley in late afternoon. It was a warm, beautiful day. There were about 20 people around the table, and uh, we had shared a meal together, and we were all, uh, of course, knew our, our host, but uh, we didn't necessarily know each other. These were all her friends. And at one point, she asked each of us to say your name and just something about, you know, it helps each, each other. And so it came around to me, and I said, uh, my name is Ross, and I'm, I've got the book called Pocket Neighborhoods that's about to go off to press. And that was, that was enough. Next. And everybody looked at me and said, no, 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 no. What's a pocket neighborhood? And darned if I'd been trying to answer that one for two or three years as I'd been researching and writing the book. It was a real challenge, and I think I'd gotten to it. But here I was at one end of the table, and I looked down, and it, 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 it was so clear. At the far end of the table, there had been a very animated conversation going on. And I know on our end of the table was another conversation. And in the middle of this long table was a third. And I said, well, these are like pocket neighborhoods. We relate... Um, so easily, so spontaneously to the people that are right around us. We're human beings. We're gregarious. We're social animals. We cannot help but be next to one another and chat, tell stories, reminisce, talk about politics, talk about, um, you know, your children or your parents or your whatever. It's what we do. It's our nature. Well, so here we are. These are like pocket neighborhoods on a block. 
So we have a sense of wholeness of living on a block, but we relate to the house across and to either side and the one behind. And the Japanese have a saying, uh, Mungo Sangen Ryo Denari. And I think every child in Japan and, um, would has this, this thing, and it means two to the front, one to either side, one to the back. Uh-huh. And those, these are your nearby neighbors that you relate to. Mm-hmm. So I said, in our country, we have somehow or another turn things around. If we were in a typical suburb, we have this facade. So I said, you know, sit up straight and put your best face forward. Okay, now, where's the life of the house? It's behind us. It's in the family room, in the backyard, around the barbecue. And what's around the backyard? Six-foot-high fences because we want privacy. Our ideal is retreat. And yet we've given up on the very core of our nature, the fact that we're social. And so what's out front are garage doors, are living room windows with nobody there because you don't use this formal living room. It's not inviting. You come down a street with these huge setbacks, you know, the streets are made for fire trucks. There's nobody home. That's what's become of our environment. And so I, uh, in, in working with pocket neighborhoods have recognized that there is a scale to our living that fosters um, our connections, our relationships, our neighborships with one another. Our next door neighbors are probably not our best friends, but by God, they should be our best neighbors. Hmm. And if there's a way in which we can have enough privacy and we can engage in community um, at a way that feels safe, then I think we'll have an environment that's more whole and more alive and is more functional. What we have is a dysfunctional environment across our society. In, in your book, um, Thinking of the Lineage, this chapter one is setting up camp, and it's, for example, the Methodist summer camp at Oak Bluffs on Martha's Vineyard, and how uh, out of a sweet disorder of tents, uh, you know, things came into a pattern of community. And then the next chapter is on gardens of compassion. Uh, and you talk about the almshouses of the Netherlands as examples of that. The next chapter is visions of garden cities. And here you have uh, the English social idealist Ebenezer Howard in 1898 wrote a book entitled Garden Cities of Tomorrow, which were, it was incredibly influential. Uh, and then you talk in the next chapter about bungalow courts, walks, and walk streets, and after that, cottage court revival. So you've gone through a series of examples of the lineage that came before you uh, and that went into, then the second part of the book is about contemporary pocket neighborhoods. And, uh, and one of the examples there is from Langley, and it's the the Third Street Cottages. Uh, could you describe the Third Street Cottages in Langley? So this is where we are now. We are in Langley. Um, we're actually in a house um, about two blocks from, from the downtown. It's a town of 1,000 people, more or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also, as the crow flies, about seven miles to where they build the 747s at Boeing. Mm-hmm. We're at the edge of the Seattle metropolitan area. 
And as such, especially in the 90s, uh, sprawl was rampant. It was like a tsunami. Um, and I had uh, seen sprawl uh, across the country in, in so many of the cities. Um, in the place where I grew up in Minnesota, a little small town um, about the same distance out from the center uh, where my family had lived for 100 years. Uh, and I saw the effects of sprawl in the 60s and the 70s. Um, to counteract it, to be active in relation to uh, the kind of things that were all around us, I was part of a conversation here in the city led by our city planner, Jack Lynch, to um, look at giving incentives to build infill, to build smaller, to build with a sense of community, rather than to keep going outside of town and subdividing large tracts into you know, large lots with ever larger houses. And so this code called the uh, Cottage Housing Development Code said that uh, uh, the town, we, will uh, give an incentive for infill. At Did you help write the code? Well, I didn't. I, I commented and helped um, uh, craft the code. And, and, and You were part of the conversation. I was definitely part of the conversation among many people. Mm -hmm. And that conversation um, uh, began in Seattle before that. That story is in my mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. um, it's a wonderful story. But here in Langley, what the code says, there are three different things. It said anyone in any residential area could build at twice the underlying density, which means they could build twice the number of houses on a piece of land than would otherwise be allowed. If the houses are limited to 1,000 square feet, no more, 1,000 square feet, mm -hmm. if they're oriented around uh, a shared garden, and if the cars are clustered, of course, there are many other aspects, but those are the key elements. Now, if that happens, then, um, there can be um, a way in which uh, more housing options are created for what is now the supermajority of households in our country, certainly in our town. By that, I mean the demographics of, of our community, of our households. You're listening to a conversation with Ross Chapin and Michael Lerner. More than 60% of households are one and two persons, empty nesters, single people. Living, often living in these huge houses. Living in houses that were designed. Uh, yeah. the, the image was um, maybe exemplified by, by Ozzie and Harriet mm -hmm. with, you know, kids and a dog and a cat. Mm -hmm. and, but you advance that a couple of decades, and at that point, then every bedroom has a bathroom. Mm -hmm. um, there are, there's a family room, TV room, um, there's uh, mm -hmm. on and on. The houses would balloon in size because we could and because uh, our physical environment was created by people who were making money mm -hmm. from the creating of the physical environment. Uh, the developers, the realtors, the, uh, all the, uh, we, we've become a consumer society mm -hmm. and we've been marketed what we think is what we want. Mm -hmm. But in fact, when we get in touch with what we want, uh, what we need, what we desire, it's really a lot simpler. It's about relationship. It's about having enough. If you have too much of enough, um, you're cluttered. 
I'm an introvert, and so when you were talking about the different needs of different kinds of people, I generally don't like people to come visit us and stay, you know. Uh, and often I'm up here by myself. Sometimes Charlotte's with me. I love the solitude, but part of what feeds my solitude is that I can choose to walk out the front door, walk downtown, be surrounded by people, you know, meet people, have somebody come over for tea. So, you know, there's a, there's a way in which um, living in uh, the sort of central core of this small town uh, both nourishes my solitude and gives me the interaction uh, with people that I that I also need. In our society, um, I think that there are some dreams, the American dream, and there's many different uh, versions of this. But an American dream that's dominant is the idea of a home of one's own, a personal mm-hmm. retreat. Uh, you don't see any neighbors. Um, you've got a view of the water, of the mountains. You've got um, your own, you know, wonderful little perfect part of the world. What a wonderful thing! Mm-hmm. At it's, the same, at the same time, yeah. there is another dream, which is um, a small house uh, in a village, mm-hmm. in a walking village, and it might be a walkable urban neighborhood, mm-hmm. where right nearby would be um, a little coffee house or a cafe or a park. I also want to say that the millennials coming in, um, they're going to to bypass the suburbs. Absolutely. Because I think they are very interested in looking at um, uh, walkable communities. So think about um, in the, uh, in the ni- in 1960s, in the early yeah. 70s, gasoline was 29.9 a gallon. Right. And, you know, it's wavering, but it's in the $3 and it's been up to $4 mm-hmm. a gallon. So we're in an environment now that is completely different. When energy... And land was plentiful. It didn't matter how wasteful we were. But now is a whole different environment. And so we're, we need to come at where we live with a whole different sensibility. And, uh, and the images there are small, super energy efficient, the, the passive house. The, the house that's you know, so self-sufficient, it really needs us to do yoga in the morning to heat the house. You know, that kind of efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, the house itself, energy efficient, yes, but also where do we live in relationship to um, where we get our food, where we um, have social times, where the schools are, where workplace is. So we might have the most super efficient house, but if we're an hour commute through traffic to get there from where we work, we've just blown our energy budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you're jumping all around the world in jet planes and you come home to, you know, super uh, passive house, well, that's that's that doesn't balance. I want to come back to the luminous quality that your work so often has and that it shares with Christopher Alexander. And I think among the many things that you share with Alexander is that you both are, how shall I say it, at some level mystics at heart whose inner vision uh, is expressed through your work, but 
the outer work of architecture is perhaps not the source of the inner vision. And I want to ask you, what has been the evolution of your inner vision? When, when in your life were you first aware of a relationship to soul? Hmm. Hmm. Um, well, of course, this is very personal. Um, give you a little little context. Um, so I grew up um, in a house that had been in our family since 1894. My sister and her children, who are now off in the world, they're the third and fourth generation in the family that lived there. So I lived in a house that had a lot of continuity. Um, I grew up um, in this house with a big wraparound porch. Uh, we slept probably five or so beds on the side porch overlooking a little ravine with a stream running through it in the early morning with the uh, bird sounds, and dappled light. This is in Minnesota, mm-hmm. on the shore of Bald Eagle Lake. Mm-hmm. And my, I remember uh, in summer evenings, sitting on the porch, all of the adults hanging out, uh, my great aunt looking across the ravine, talking about when she was a child. And this would be, you know, back in, uh, let's see, she's 1893, probably... 1908, 10, somewhere in there. And she talked about, you know, sitting in the crux to this tree. It was an oak tree across the ravine. Well, I look across and there's the oak tree. And it's much bigger, of course, but there it was. And she was speaking about that when she was my age as a child in this place. And so I had this experience of this continuity. Um, we were free-range children. We were allowed to roam and play. The lake was right there. So were we, and that has disappeared. Isn't it's it It's so sad. It's so sad. It's unbelievably sad. Yeah. And I wonder, is it largely about security, about people's fears that something is going to happen to their children? I mean, it's so striking because we were free-range children, too. Yeah. And you almost never meet free-range children. Right, or right, right. Not right. often. Uh, this we could is, go down that road. Well, but, this is true, yeah. and and also it's this ties in with uh, why I think pocket neighborhoods are important. Yeah, we can we can touch in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me stay with this one a little yeah. bit, though. Mm-hmm. So, as a child, um, I would you know venture down to the lake, to the ravine, to. Uh, the woods in back of our house, and I would be uh, oftentimes showing up at one of our neighbors' houses uh, because we knew which neighbors to, um, you know, that they were very welcoming. That would either have cookies or uh, Mrs. Bergquist would have um, you open up her garage door and here's a dartboard, and the kids would go and open up her garage door and play darts, and that was just all kinds of fun. But anyway, I would also have times alone where I would go down at sunset and sit at the end of the dock and um, be with the sky it as was, it was turning, reflected on the water, through twilight when the first stars would come out. And I might bring a sleeping bag and sleep on the end of the dock and watch the stars in their vividness and imagine myself out beyond this world, beyond the earth, 
and try to imagine deep space. Mm. Um, as a um, young child, I mean, my father and mother grew up next to one another right there at the lake. What, what were, briefly, what were their stories? What, were the, what did your father do for a living? My father um, uh, is now 87 mm-hmm. and uh, living at Bald Eagle Lake. Mm-hmm. And he is a mechanical engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, very uh, lover of life. Mm-hmm. He uh, he was very passionate about um, uh, skiing and snow skiing when he was married in 1951. I think an hour before his wedding, he was out on the lake, that same lake, skiing. <laughs> this is when water skiing was, you know, first mm-hmm. getting going. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother is um, has more of an artistic sense. Mm-hmm. And she was um, one who who lived a life that uh, that looked at the world uh, from an aesthetic, artistic uh, vantage. And I think, as uh, in her generation, uh, I think it was challenging to to um, be expected to grow up and hear our four kids, three brothers and one sister. Uh, four in her family. I was the middle one. And, um, and she had to be um, a parent. And I think she lived through us. And in many ways, her artistic nature was um, sort of thwarted or sidetracked. But I gained so much from her. And what I gained from her especially, I'm going to say my father, but when I was really young, um, she and my dad would hold us in the water before we could walk and just uh, on their ankles sort of bouncing in the water. And then they'd let us go and dunk underwater because they realized that, look, we live next to a lake. The lake is very attractive, especially to children. And we need to, as children, need to be able to um, be around water, to swim. So we could swim maybe before we could walk. there was an experience when um, I must have been, well, I, was, I had to have been at the early part of three, maybe middle part. I was still in diapers. That couldn't be, whatever the age that was. My older brother was uh, a couple of years older, and uh, he would be walking to the um, children's uh, craft thing during the summer at the old train depot. It was probably a mile and a half away. And I know how far it is because I, you know, my folks live right there. So he would walk there, and I said, well, I want to go. And my mother would say, well, you can't go because, you know, they're not trained to do diapers. And I said, well, I don't need that. And so he and I would walk then all summer um, over to the train depot, a mile and a half along the lake, and then up the avenue to the train tracks where the depot was. And so here, you know, a five-year-old and a three-year-old walking a mile and a half. And we'd come back and we'd play along the lake and, and so forth. So there was a kind of a trust that my mother um, allowed us. And as an adult, I asked her, how did you do that? And she said, well, I would give you the amount of trust that I could and then a little bit more because I was your mother and I needed to give you a little bit more space because I will naturally try to pull you closer and hold you in. But trust is the way that you find yourself in the world. Isn't it wonderful to grow up that way? Yeah. Growing up with a sense of being loved and trusted is just such a blessing. 
And so we were off and off yeah. on our own. Yeah. And I didn't realize that we were um, being held, but by a mm. long thread yeah. or by a long um, leash. Because mm. it felt like we were independent mm. at a very young age. Mm-hmm. So here's... Um, Forgotten what your question was. Well, the question is when you began to experience soul in your life, and and okay. some notes you gave me, you talked about being small, being outcast, and being pushed to awareness of being a soul beyond time. Mm. What was that about? So, um, I started kindergarten when I was four years old. So I was at the younger um, uh, age. Uh, of the other kids in my in my grade, and I think it was first grade. Uh, we were at the um, second grade. It was at the uh, Washington School that my dad went to. And I can remember uh, Kenny and uh, his friend Squirt. Kenny was a friend of mine that lived nearby our house, and Squirt was Kenny's friend. And they were choosing teams. They were each sort of captain of a of a little baseball team, mm-hmm. and. Um, Neither one of them chose me. And, you know, that they went off to play this, this game of baseball. But here I was, so tiny. I was not only young for the age group, I was very small. Hmm. Almost like a couple of years smaller. Um, and they didn't want to have me on their team. And I can remember sitting on the cornerstone at the edge of the school and saying, they don't see me. Hmm. They don't know who I am. And I felt like I was thrust to uh, my life beyond this body, beyond this life, realizing that I am in touch with um, an arc of lives, with a continuity of a soul that is coming out in in these different ways. So here I am in this life, and they don't see me. I'm invisible, but I know who I am. So already at that age, you had a sense of other lives? Not specifically, mm-hmm. but a sense of that I am part of a continuum, mm. that this life is just mm-hmm. one expression of who I am. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would... Did that stay with you? All, all my life. All your life? Yeah. So you've had this inner sense of who you are. And then your outer experience. And the outer experience, yeah. Mm-hmm. And where, where did you take that soul journey to? What, what uh, where, how, how did that evolve? What is, the, what is the history of your soul evolution as opposed to your outer journey as an architect? So I experienced the world uh, through my body, and I experienced the world not knowing that I was getting an education, but I was immersed in the world. Uh, at the same time, I was immersed in you know, being um, a student, and I was very curious about all that. But when I went off to um, college, I started pre-architecture when I was 17, sort of was launched into um, that whole world. I had an idea of what I wanted, but uh, I had no clue uh, about what it really entailed. As it turned out, it was an ideal education for me. I have in me... Well, I have in me um, 
perhaps some of my father's um, sensibilities as an engineer, as a practical person, mm-hmm. as a maker of things. Um, and I have my mother's artistic sensibility and her um, the qualities of, of relationship and empathy. And architecture is a wonderful marriage of science and art, a wonderful marriage of the, um, the physical, tangible world and the unmeasurable, soulful side of things. I was very uh, fortunate to have a couple of very special uh, teachers. The first one was Tom Bender. Um, Tom um, now lives on the Oregon coast. Uh, We're friends. But Tom's approach was not around form. It was around the energetics of space. And he spent quite a bit of time in the East, um, in Japan and in Thailand and in these other places, and looking at the sacred architecture from a culture that was not Western culture. And he was bringing these back, and he was sharing these sensibilities with us. Um, and he introduced us to um, the whole idea of feng shui, far before it became a popular thing. Feng shui being the, uh, the Chinese uh, notion of the energetics of space. I, that's a terrible definition, but um, looking at the, at the world in the sense of the power, places of power and strength, and very much out of the Chinese sensibility. So he would introduce these to us. Here I was, 17, 18. Uh, he took us out on a retreat where we were four days um, in uh, a really in an encampment um, out away from the city and the college. And he took us into a guided meditation into um, where we were. He would take us out through the levels of scale, perhaps like uh, Charles and Ray Ames, uh, which I found out later. But he would take us out as this guided meditation out as I was a child sitting at the end of the dock dreaming about the stars. Well, he would take us out and make it vivid. Who were and then Charles and Ray Ames? Charles and Ray Ames were um, uh, designers based in, in California, and they were very much interested in the industrial design, the design of things in our lives, uh, and finding life. You can see it on YouTube. They have a movie that they created called The Powers of Ten. Oh, yes. Tom took us experientially through The Powers of Ten, out as far as you know could be understood that he could express and then brought us back in and brought us deep into our bodies into the substructures and the the deep parts of our body and then brought us back and um, put on a recording of humpback whales and here we were as members of a whale community coming together in community and we were lying all head to the centers in this great um, outdoor space. So he would do things like this, which to me really activated something that uh, in the other classes at the university I was not getting. We were learning physics and structures and we were learning um, about the history of architecture and so forth. Um, But through him and then other times during the university, I was touched through this to something that was very real. Um, And so I was remembering something that that I knew. What years were these? 
I began in 1972. So this was happening right oh, at the height of the 70s. Height, so, yes. And so, he was there. And he was part of that. Yeah. Yeah. He introduced the possibility that as students, we could design and build a completely self-sufficient, self-sustaining house. 1972. And we did that. And we built an off-the-grid house called Ouroboros, which is the mystical serpent eating its tail. And it's a closed system, a living system in that way. And so we created the Ouroboros house. As students, we designed and we built a house on university surplus land. It was on the cover of Smithsonian, popular science, and then the oil embargo came. And the oil embargo, if you can remember, was basically, oh my God, there's not infinite oil and people control it. And so here we have these houses that need no oil. It's a big deal. Yeah. Well, Tom was right there. And so he was a person who, and is a person, who is very much interested in energy, um, the physical, practical energy, as well as the energetics, the in, inner energy. And um, he introduced us to E.F. Schumacher and uh, Small is Beautiful, Appropriate Technologies. And uh, so he was a really a, a strong influence with me, although I really couldn't acknowledge it until later. I didn't know. It was just happening. But here's part of the story that relates to your question about soul. So as architecture goes on in the later years, it becomes more and more focused. Well, I had my whole being sort of being cracked open, and I was going outward in uh, my arms are up, sort of going out. And that was in opposition to the focused and going in and getting more disciplined. I was not getting more disciplined. Um, I was opening up. In the middle of this, I took, after three years of school, I had to take time off. I nearly dropped out of school. And I went off to Europe. Uh, I traveled quite a bit. And um, in my travels, I was in Berkeley. And I went to the architecture school thinking, well, something's not working where I was going because I'm not addressing something and I didn't know. And I came across this manuscript. In fact, folders and folders of these manuscripts with all these um, things. And it was a pattern language as it was being written. Christopher Alexander. Christopher Alexander's pattern language. And I was able to get a hold of um, as much as I could find a way to copy, stuffed it in my pack, and it was like food for the soul. Uh, as I said, I approach design like play. It's very innate. I just do it. It's just fun. Undisciplined. Mm-hmm. I you know, tried to follow what they were teaching us at school, but I was just, it didn't matter. I just, just make stuff. And I was guided by, did it have magic? Did it have life? What Chris Alexander offered me through a pattern language was a structure, a structure that said there are places in the world that I think we can recognize almost universally as having life at every level of scale, be it regions to uh, neighborhoods to house and building clusters to outdoor gardens, buildings, rooms, the things in a building, the center table, the farmhouse kitchen, um, And these are places that he called uh, patterns. They're recognizable uh, relationships. And there are challenges uh, in the world 
that can be solved by not do it exactly this way, but bring these elements into this kind of relationship and you will likely have a quality that has life to it. For example, there is uh, the pattern called uh, front door bench. So imagine outside your door, a little bench, perhaps a, uh, a little porch cover, and maybe a raised um, uh, flower bed right next to it. Well, you'll find this in Japan, in England. You'll find this in uh, a porch, say, outside a little southern, you know, Alabama farmhouse. It's universal. The idea of sheltering roof, the idea of um, pools of light, that's a, a smaller pattern. It says, uh, around a table, uh, bring a light down and cast a pool over the table. It, people are drawn to light. And so this is a pattern to help make the table a focal center. So I um, took a pattern language as an idea uh, as a framework, and I went back to school, and I put my seatbelt on, and I, and I got myself through another two years of school using a pattern language as the filter, as the focus through which I do all my projects. None of my professors had heard about a pattern language, uh, and yet I was working with the pattern language in my own way, uh, kind of, you know, shirt tail this is a way of seeing the world, being in the world. And by golly, my, my designs began to be more consistent, began to have more depth, began to have more coherence and more life. Uh, when I left school in later years, I worked closely with builders. Uh, I would design places and I would be making things as well. And a pattern language continued to be my filter when I was working with clients, even now, uh, uh, I may not mention it with the people that I work with, but it's, it's very much uh, my um, filter in, in, in approaching this. You know, one of the things that was fascinating to me is you helped us with our house and little project of renovating a, a sort of a study was, you know, I, so I had some basic ideas about how I was going to do it, and I asked you to come and look at my ideas and... You came in and one of your gifts is to be gracious about these things and you took my ideas and worked with them but refined them profoundly. And then as we began to get to specifics, for every problem that we faced or every decision point, on your iPhone you had examples of solutions that you had used in the hundreds of projects you'd done before. So whether it was a countertop or flooring or whatever it was, for every design challenge, you just had a vocabulary, in a sense, a visual vocabulary of all kinds of different solutions. So, you know, just recently we're getting down to the issue of the floor and, you know, it's an expensive project to do things and so the logical thing was to put down carpet on the concrete or to put down laminate, you know, and so you had a good suggestions about those. But then the more I had done this with you, the more invested I got in this being a living space. 
And I realized at a certain point that for me, having a wood floor was important, you know? And so I called you and said, Ross, I just feel like I've got to do a wood floor. I said, but you know what? My image is of a very rough wood floor, like a monk's cell. And you said, well, that's like the floor up at the green, what's it called? The green? Living green. Living green. Go look at that, you know? So I went up and sure enough, you know, there was a floor not unlike what I had in mind. So what's interesting about this is, (laughs) is this... Uh, that you have this vision as you talk about about different fields and so on and so forth and then there are all the ways you have resolved each of the design questions which like as not you have on your iPhone images or you will send me somewhere and say go look at that and so what you're doing for me and I would think for any sentient uh, person that you're working with it's an educational process in the true sense of leading out into what the possibilities are. You're, you're educating our inner eye to how we want to be in relationship to this home where we live. You're listening to a conversation with Ross Chapin and Michael Lerner. And it's a profound process. I was trying to remember whether, I think it was in one of yeah, Christopher Alexander's books, he talked about he was finishing a house in Berkeley for some banker, and, you know, that it was a really lovely house. And uh, the guy he uh, was working with said, you know, his helper or whatever said, you know, I'd love to live in this space or whatever. Anyway, the banker came home, And he looked at what was going on, and he said something like, is it really okay to have this much fun? (laughs) And uh, Christopher Alexander talked about the fact that, you know, so frequently in our decisions about where we live or how we're going to design space, we make the practical decision, you know, the the minimalist decision. We put in the laminate, we put in the carpet, whatever it is that, you know, just covers the floor uh, in the least expensive possible way. But if if one's relationship to these um, spaces is informed by the importance of bringing out the luminosity somehow it shifts values about Mm. what one wants to do. It's no longer simply, you know, what's the cheapest way to do this? Well, the practical side says choose um, the least expensive, choose the, uh, the most easily obtained, choose the quickest built. Right. And I think that's important. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, Mm-hmm. Carrying uh, as much weight is—is is it beautiful? Yeah. Does it reflect the nature mm-hmm. of who you truly are? Mm-hmm. Does it reflect the, the the qualities of this place? What are the potentials? And the soft questions uh, like that have just as much reality mm-hmm. as the hard questions about how we make things. The challenge of our culture is that we become so mechanistic 
We've become so consumer, so commodity-driven, that our choices become purely measurable. And we're missing something so completely. And so I'm trying to find um, the balance again. Right. That's beautiful. So you talk about influences... uh Whole Systems, uh, E.F. Schumacher, Bucky Fuller. You mentioned Lucan. You talk about uh, phenomenology, topophilia, Martin Heidegger, Martin Buber, general systems theory. Um, You talk about Carl Jung, uh, Seth, uh, you know, the um, Seth Speaks Seth, uh, Zen. Um, so you were in the midst of this familiar mixture of influences that we were all being uh, touched by in, in that period of time. And then you also talk about rediscovering your body, body knowing, uh, rewiring personal and familial cultural tapes. Um, you talk about Conference on Consciousness, Fool's Initiation. Uh, let's take that. What, what was Fool's Initiation? Let me uh, come to that by saying that, um, so here I was um, in my last um, term at the university, and I was doing my thesis, and I came across um, on a telephone pole a little flyer for a class called Contact Improvisation. Mm-hmm. I, had, I went, hmm, contact. I, I, I like that. Improvisation. Mm-hmm. Kind of scary, but uh, sure. And so here I was uh, trying to focus in on doing my thesis, which was on community and housing and so forth, and very focused and many all-nighters uh, during that whole term. At the same time, I began to do Contact Improvisation, which is a form of of movement based on the point of contact between two people. And so uh, after years of being away from my body, remember I sort of grew up and very body physically oriented and then went off to school and came into my head and the excitement of all the ideas and the theories. And, uh, and yet it's almost like I had uh, just put my body on hold. And so I entered doing contact improvisation uh, which happens in twos and threes and groups. And I discovered that through this point of contact, I could feel when something had clarity, when there was truth, when there was an authenticity. And I could feel when um, either my thoughts entered in or when someone else's thoughts or preconceptions entered into their mind because I could feel it through the point of contact, through the touch. With my eyes closed, I could feel the lines uh, of myself extending through their body to their their feet and their ground and their earth, and I could feel my gravity um, going through their structure. I could feel when they could hold tension and when they could relax. If their um, hips were tight, with my eyes closed, touching the hand, I could feel that. At the same time, that helped me say, oh, where am I and what? how do I feel? Okay, relax this, relax that. Be completely open, available to this moment. Being open, available to the moment means coming into 
the moment as an instant, as this emerging, every moment fresh, every moment new. And for me, this was a gateway. Um, and I could feel in my body. So here I was dancing, moving. Was it a surprise to you that you could feel all that? Was that like no, a no, revelation? No, no, no. It's very, it very natural, but it was like remembering this as a more, here I was, an adult with a conscious mind mm-hmm. and a also a, you know, a sexual being. Mm-hmm. So as a child, you are moving in the world and it's very mm-hmm. physical, but as an adult, there's the other dimension of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Well, what does our culture say about sexuality? Mm-hmm. What is, you know, my family patterns, what, is, what does that say about sexuality? Mm-hmm. And uh, as they came up, these sexual feelings, these uh, sensuous feelings, uh, I, I went confronted sort of uh, family uh, taboos, cultural taboos, and I could feel whether they had truth or whether they were applied. Hmm. And uh, as I felt that, I just the way I relaxed my shoulders, <sighs> relaxed my breath. Feel my feet. Come into the present. I could come into the presence with these feelings and I could release the patterns um, of the taboos that were becoming frozen in my muscular structure, in the cellular structure. And I could consciously uh, relax and release them. And at the same time, begin to um, repattern something that was very deep. Was it muscular? Was it in the physical structure? Uh, was it in the cells? Uh, where, where was my mind? Is my mind centered in my brain? Or is, do I know in the cells that are held through my body, in my hands, in the back of my, um, my back? There's a truth there that I could begin to experience, not with theory, but through experience. That's a beautiful description, because what it brings to mind is the relationship of this deep knowing of your body in relationship to other bodies and the capacity to sense what is happening in other bodies, which is certainly not entirely a commonplace. That relationship to your work in architecture, uh, in other words, our you know, our bodies or our houses in some fundamental sense. And so I guess my question is, do you have a sense that your rather developed capacities for sensory awareness of your body and the bodies of others relates to the way in which you are able to find truth and see patterns in uh, built structures? Uh, uh, yes, completely. I think in the experience of, uh, of movement, for me, as I mentioned, I'm probably kinesthetic would be my mode. Mm-hmm. As I experience something in my body, I can feel its reality. I can feel um, uh, its relationship to the rest of the world. And through the physical, there is an emotional, there's a spiritual reality as well. And so I come at it not through the wonderful complexity of thought 
and all of that world, which I also enjoy, but my native ground is more, hmm. um, how does it feel in this body? Uh, how does the space affect my feeling? So as I'm working on designing, I may be focusing very intently on crafting the particulars of a, a building, of a room, of a cabinet. Um, but I'm, I'm uh, feeling at my side like an antenna. As I make this adjustment in the physical form, do I feel more alive or less alive? If I'm designing um, a house, do I feel more secure or less secure? Do I feel more engaged with the surrounding um, uh, community or do I feel less? What's the, the right relationship of openness and enclosure to the street out front, to the neighbor uh, across the way? Uh, and so I'm working very particularly on the physical details, but I'm not, and I love them to be beautiful, aesthetically beautiful, but that's not my focus. Yeah, yes, it's my focus, but I'm really paying attention to how it affects um, our, the support of our social relationship, our personal sense of, of being in this place. So I'm really watching that. Mm-hmm. And I've gained that through a lot of the, uh, my, I didn't think about it as education, but my education through um, through dance and as a child through um, being this um, child in the woods and in the water. Hmm. So that brings us back to this uh, fool's initiation. Uh, huh. hmm? what, so, what is the fool's initiation? Um, so what happened was that as I finished my thesis, mm-hmm. uh, I had a number of job offers that came to me and so I was, had this choice point of, on one hand, these job offers coming and I could launch into a career as an architect. I think it was recognized that, oh, tap into this kid. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he's got some potential. Mm-hmm. Here I was, what was more alive for me was dance. Mm-hmm. And um, I heard about this seven, no, six-week dance intensive in San Francisco. I was in Minnesota. And it started three days after my thesis. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's where I'm going. What year are we? This is uh, 78. 78. And uh, so that's where I'm going. And so three days after I presented my thesis to Mm -hmm. the, it's called a jury, Mm -hmm. I uh, landed in San Francisco among 65 dancers from around North Mm -hmm. America, Mm -hmm. some from South America, with the Mangrove Company. Mm -hmm. Uh, Seven men, uh, contact improvisation immersion, but at the same time it was guest teachers, dancers, musicians from all around the Bay Area emerging on this um, intensive from early in the morning meditation going through late at night conversations, mm-hmm. seven days a week. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. I was in heaven. It mm-hmm. was so incredible. And I just had to let go. And um, what happened after that, though, was very interesting. This will lead to your question is that that completed, I stayed in San Francisco because I was not ready to enter into architecture at all. In fact, I was going the opposite. All of my systems were just opening up. And my emotional world, my spiritual world, I began to have dreams, uh, vivid dreams, waking dreams, lucid dreams. 
uh, my emotional relationship with the world around me was like technicolor. Uh, I was cracked open, and I was not about to get into practicing architecture. Mm. No way. And after a number of months, I went back to Minnesota. I had to get back home. I mean, I was almost getting going off the end. I was I was really opening up, and I needed some ground. So I did. I went back to Minnesota, which is great. Looking for a teacher. Okay, uh, who can help me with movement and emotion and dreams and all of this stuff and I couldn't find it so I began perhaps as many students do I began to teach it I had um, began to teach contact improvisation mm-hmm. and I would do it outside uh, Lake of the Isles surrounded on three sides by water during the summer twice a week from about two and a half hours before sunset and I would lead this class and it would finish uh, as the sun set over the water and so the practice of movement and working with emotion and working with images that came in uh, began to bring in a kind of uh, natural ritual mm-hmm. sense around the cycles of, of the day and the season as it went along. And about this time, um, I met a number of people in Minneapolis, which I had never known before, who had been involved with Jean Houston and um, her whole sensibility. Now, Jean is a woman at that time from New York. She's still in, or was in New York. And the human potential movement and the idea that we have, all have these innate capacities that can be unlocked. And there are many people that had worked very closely with her. And those are the people that organized the first conference on consciousness in Minneapolis hmm. and brought um, quite a number of people in, in there including this woman who is a ceremonialist from New Mexico, Elizabeth Cogburn. Uh, but this group was held on the weekend of um, April 1st, April Fools. Well, maybe that's the theme for the, this conference. And they said, we need a fool. They all looked at me. <laughs> he was this young kid who was just wide open, willing to step anywhere. Mm-hmm. Great, bring him in. So um, at the center of this weekend was um, what was going to be a huge um, dance. Uh, uh, and I had a 90-foot diameter parachute uh, that actually Tom Bender had gotten a hold of, and I had gotten a hold of it then. And so at the beginning, Saturday evening, you, you people are walking in from this conference into this space that turned into this universal form, a 90-foot diameter parachute in a 100-foot diameter no, probably an 80-foot diameter gymnasium brought to the ceiling with candles all about and musicians everywhere. It was being inside a, um, a tent in the Arabian desert. It's being you know, out in space with the kind of shapes that, that were there. It was being in the womb, surrounded by this soft cloth and the sounds. Mm. And I was... Um, positioned uh, on a on a dais. Uh, why, I don't know. But um, at one point, all the lights went out, and here I was surrounded by candles, um, and I was uh, the fool, and I was to say a few words. Well, I looked out, and it's like I was transported to another time. We were in the high desert, 
and we were gathered um, around the fire, and we're making a long journey, mm. and there's very little water and very little food. And I said, these are challenging times, but there's a thread that we follow. And this thread is a golden thread that we each are in touch with. It's a continuity of life. And we can walk this together and not only survive, we can make it to our dream. Beautiful. And then it shifted again. I was in a cave. Again, there were, there were candles or fires there. And I looked down and I had these, these rough monk's robes on. And there were other... Um, monks there. It was very, very austere. It was way out at an edge. There was water that I was hearing, um, like waves. And it felt like we were being um, there was going to be a raid or something. We were in incredible danger. I said, find your way to being in touch with that core deep within you. And whether we survive this physically, uh, we are part of an arc of life. Mm. And then I wake, and here I am, sitting on a dais with all of these candles and all of these faces looking at me. And we must have, I don't know how long we were in silence. They were saying, what's going on? Mm. And I could feel... The words, almost like on my shoulder or behind my ear, speaking. And all I had to do was to pay attention to uh, whatever that was that was coming in. Um, and it was coming in as an energy, and it was translated somehow or another through me, through my heart, through here, into words. And I said, we are in a time like there has never been a time and there have always been times like this we are going through a narrow passage and there are going to be times in our lifetimes and perhaps our children's lifetimes that will be very very narrow and we need to be in touch with that light inside that golden thread that essence and we are part of a continuity of being and whether we survive it in this body does not matter because we're part of um, a human, divine uh, journey together. And stay there. Be with that. And then somehow we came out. The music began. We began to dance. And it was like dancing then in this new world. Mm -hmm. And that we're all coming together in this amazing coherence together. And so uh, I was uh, stepped into a part of me that I had not known. And uh, capacities that became so alive and so vivid. In uh, Later on, uh, it was the, the day uh, later... Um, the whole gathering was about to close. And we gathered in this huge circle of all of us together. There might have been 300 people there. And I think that it was the weekend that Three Mile Island was happening. Mm. And uh, someone stepped into the center of the circle and spoke about this. 
and uh, about the Three Mile Island and the meltdown that was happening and had us focus on resolving this condition. And, and all of us did, and I could just see it. I could feel it resolving. And as the circle was about to close, Elizabeth asked us to hold hands, Elizabeth Cogburn. She was uh, the ceremonialist sort of holding the whole conference together. And she uh, was about to enter into this grand spiral to close the dance. And I felt each person uh, on each side of me and my feet were on fire. I was burning. Mm. And I just had to take my shoes off. I couldn't hold them. They're like, they were like on fire. And I took my shoes off and all of a sudden, my energy just shot deep into the earth, through my body. It was just like it came down from the sky, slammed through my body, and right down deep into the ground. And then it came up again and came right through and burst through my heart, through my crown. And all I could do is hang on to each person on each side of me as tight as I could and try to hold myself as I was quaking and shaking. And I, I part of my little mind said, you know... Uh, don't make a commotion. Don't, don't, don't do what you're got to do. And I couldn't hold it. And I just broke out in this wail. And Elizabeth saw me and uh, she basically said, of course, hold on. And I just allowed this energy to come through me. Mm. Um, and I felt my whole body just being uh, like electricity just routing through every cellular channel, every neural channel of my, of my being. And uh, in the days after that, I was having experiences where when someone was about to speak, I was uh, feeling their words ahead of that. Hmm. And just before they could speak, I heard their words. <gasps> and there were synchronicities happening again and again. And so this is my first sort of awakening, sort of mystical experience. I've had a lot of dreams, uh, a lot of pretty amazing dreams uh, during that period. But this was where it was just like vivid. It was real. It was physical, but it was spirit. It was, I don't know how to define it. I don't have words, but it was. Hmm. If time allowed, we could talk about how David Spangler, the great spiritual visionary has touched you we could certainly talk about your Sufi dancing and uh, and what a powerful experience uh, participating with the Mevlevi Sufis has been um, there are many other things that have followed from that first awakening but I think what I'd like to close with is um, because you're an architect uh, two buildings at the Whitby Institute that you created, which really are at the heart of the Whitby Institute. You've done three buildings there, the farmhouse, Thomas Berry Hall, and the sanctuary. But I'd like to close with um, the sanctuary and the woods, which is a exquisite little chapel structure, and Thomas Berry Hall, which holds uh, the great gatherings of the Whitby Institute. And in both places, these buildings are exquisitely beautiful buildings. Um, what do they mean to you? What does it mean to you that you, among the many other things that you've created on this island, that 
sort of central gathering point at the Whidbey Institute that you built and designed, uh, the gathering place and the, the sacred space. What, how do you hold that? Let me focus on the sanctuary, as I realize that we, we do have a limited time. And the sanctuary is something, I think, that it was held as a potential for many years. We were able to actualize a place for deep meditation that was non-denominational, mm. that had no overt images mm. of any tradition. Uh, and yet, walking in, uh, we feel a sense of... of um, elevation to the higher aspects of our of our humanness the the building happened um, not only through the the core circle at the Whidbey Institute uh, Chinook but it also happened through a partnership with Kim Holting who is a builder artist wood lover um, that I've known in all my years here and he and I walked the land trying to find a place. And the committee wanted it in one place, but we were up there and felt if this is in the place, it takes the center. The center needs to be held as a, as a, as a empty, as quiet, as a void. And so he walked over to this one spot in a saddle and, and said, I, I think the building is here. And I looked over and I saw the building. Hmm. I saw it very clearly. The building was very much a, um, had a ceremonial quality to it of, of um, approach from the known world through a pathway deep into the woods and arriving at this field in front uh, or this, this glade in front. And here we have the building now with um, almost, it was, the outside is sheathed in, in almost like rough bark um, boards, rough sawn boards. The roof is made out of cedar, split cedar planks that um, uh, lap like, like scales of a, of a uh, fish, except these planks are like five feet long. Um, and now growing moss, very beautiful. And in terms of the ceremonial quality, so you approach and you step onto the porch, and if you look down at your feet, you'll see that this porch is one slab of wood, six to seven feet wide and 15 feet long, that was um, a salvaged piece of wood that Kim had found um, in a state or in a national park that was uh, salvaged that had come down in a windstorm. And you step inside into this uh, beginning room and it has a low ceiling and you immediately smell the cedar in this wood and there's a place for coats and boots to come off. But instead of having doors that enter into the, the center sanctuary, you um, open through a doorway, and here you're confronted with this um, another slab of wood that has these just amazing, uh, this grain to it. It must be, it's a uh, dovetail, so it's, got, it's very symmetrical. It's two pieces joined together. It must be five feet wide. And you, you're confronted with that. You go through, you're brought to the side, and then you can look into 
the center space, there are no windows to see out horizontally. There is a singular skylight at the top and the beams are layered going up to the top and the light is coming in, casting this, um, this clarity. So uh, as you enter the space, there are four columns around the room. Uh, there are, it's, there's a, an alcove farther away and there are sub-alcoves on the side and there's a loft that overlooks. And the space itself is organized around uh, golden proportions and organized around a sequence of entry by which the time you finally enter the gate of passing this threshold, uh, you are ready to, be, to arrive, ready to be present. And so my ceremonial background that I have in working with Elizabeth Cogburn for a number of years um, and my architectural background working with Christopher Alexander um, and then working with Kim in crafting it and the other builders allowed us to create a space that is, uh, speaks to us not through our minds but through our hearts and through our bodies that everyone entering, I might say, I don't know, you can experience it, is brought to a hush, a quiet. And I think that's the nature of what sanctuary is, to help us come to ourselves, where we can experience, like the pool out in front, a bit of the universe. We are little holograms of the larger universe. And when we realize our wholeness, then we can add to the larger wholeness that we're within. And a sanctuary in its, in its potential brings people into their awareness of their own wholeness, their own life, their own thread that can be woven into the other threads of the other selves of us as a human family on earth, in space, part of this continuity of being that we weave together as a whole. I think the sanctuary brings us into that presence. Ross Chapin, thank you for being with us at the New School. What a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with architect Ross Chapin and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port O'Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N. W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.